Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our Team Top 10 Prospects podcast series today with the Boston Red Sox. We're going to talk about Marcelo Mayer's first full season as a professional and how that played out. We're going to talk about the signing of Masataka Yoshida and a look at Miguel Blaise as well, one of the more interesting breakout prospects in the lower levels of 2022. To do all that, I'm joined by Alex Spear. Alex is obviously the longtime Red Sox beat writer with the Boston Globe, as well as a longtime BA correspondent for us. Alex, thank you for joining me today. Hey, Kyle. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is always one of my favorite ones. I think this is our seventh podcast doing it together about the Red Sox. Nice. And hey, for the, for the first time in that entire span, I do not have to ask you what an update on Jay Groom is. He's no longer part of the org. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that that thought crossed my mind on, uh, on trade deadline day. But yeah, it's, uh, it, is, it is amazing that the Red Sox have entered the post-Groom phase, which is also um, a reminder in some ways of where their system has come over the last few years. Because like Groom... Back in, you know, back in 2018, 2019 was uh, right at the top of in the conversation for top Red Sox prospect. And, you know, here we are several years later and we're still waiting for him to make his major league debut. But um, the fact that he is not in the conversation for the top Red Sox prospect coming off of Tommy John and all that stuff uh, suggests a different state of the system. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question the state of the system has improved from, say, 2018, 2019. The flip side to that is the major league team has gotten worse. Obviously, 2018 was was really one of the best teams of the last 20, 30 years, won a World Series. They were good in 2021. They got to the ALCS, which was a surprise finish. Things in 2022 definitely fell backward. The club finished in last place in the American League East, which was a surprise to everybody. And this offseason has uh, certainly been eventful. I can use the word tumultuous. Um, obviously, losing Xander Bogarts in free agency and everything that went into that with the inability to extend him. Then, of course, Trevor Story needing elbow surgery. That's going to keep him out for most of the year. Essentially left the Red Sox without a great shortstop option. They did sign Rafael Devers to a long-term deal in a lot of ways in response to the fact they lost Xander Bogarts and, and understanding the need to keep one of those core guys, you know, the thought of losing Mookie Bet, Xander Bogarts, and Rafael Devers in, in potentially three and a half calendar years would have been catastrophic to the franchise. They've also made some other moves, signing Adam Duvall, Kenley Jansen, Corey Kluber. But look, you know it, you see it every day in your work. Red Sox Nation is, is not happy. Where are things right now um, in terms of the outlook for this organization, both in terms of the club they have in the major leagues and this farm system that, as you mentioned, has improved. But again, the, the other side of that is the big league team is, has gotten a lot worse in that same time span. Yeah, well, you know, you right. 2018 was a historic season and not just for, you know, not just in the last 20 or 30 years, but when a team wins 108 games and then yeah. steamrolls through the postseason, you can yeah. make a case for it being in, you know, among the top 20 teams of all time. Um, and they're far from that right now. Two last place finishes in three seasons. Um, they, they have a chance to be a better team. Like, you know, no one wants to, you know, as, as ugly as this offseason has been from a public perception standpoint, with the departure of Bogarts and other longtime mainstays, uh, such as Evaldi, they have a chance to be a somewhat better put-together team. Um, they look better in the bullpen than they did 
a year ago, their bullpen was woefully deficient and they blew a bunch of early one-run games in the American League East that kind of uh, put them behind the eight ball with a horrific record in the American League East. Their record outside of the division was just about as good as that of Toronto and Tampa Bay and Baltimore. The separation happened inside of the division. So if they win some more close games in the division, then they could be, they theoretically could be on better footing. But on paper, if you look at like Fangraph's war and, you know, projected war uh, for teams, they're kind of middle in the pack in Major League Baseball, which puts them way down the pack in the American League East, which is the division that they operate in, um, because you have elite, elite teams in, you know, in the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Rays uh, that look loaded with more depth. And, you know, one of the scary things for the Red Sox is their farm system has improved, but so are those of, you know, the Yankees and the Blue Jays. Well, not the Blue Jays, but uh, certainly the Yankees and the Rays and especially the Orioles um, that where the progress that they've made is, uh, in an effort to not fall too far behind, it feels like. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a difficult position, but they are certainly on better footing. The players who were so far away back in 2018, 2019, they didn't have upper levels depth in those years. Now they do. And uh, really the step that that group is able to take, especially if there's an, a greater than predicted step forward uh, for their pitching staff, uh, for, their, for their pitching prospects, then it could put them in a very different spot for the long term uh, than they've been in in some time. Yeah, and with that, there is now a lot of focus on this farm system. As you mentioned, it's getting better. There's more upper-level depth, and that should help them withstand injuries or poor performance, maybe better than they have in some recent years. And that was a big part of why High and Bloom was brought in to kind of build this renewable source of talent that the Red Sox have had some great farm systems, but there was more of a boom or bust cycle they were trying to get out of. In terms of now moving forward, I, I want to jump into the number one prospect here in the system, Marcelo Mayer, who there's now even more attention on because now that Xander Bogarts has gone, there's no doubt that now Marcelo Mayer is the long-term Red Sox shortstop and someone that Red Sox fans have gotten to know a little bit, but are certainly going to be paying a, a lot more attention to now with this kind of that pivot, I should say, to the future. There's a really, really strong sense that the Red Sox got a steal when Mayer fell to them at fourth overall in the draft. Went out his first full season this past year, uh, dealt with an injury, but performed really well when he was on the field, hit for average, hit for power, got on base, uh, silky smooth defender at shortstop, has always been his calling card. Um, what were the reviews on Marcelo Mayer after this first year, and, and what's kind of the next step? He did get to high A to finish uh, last season. What are kind of the next steps in his development, and, and what's kind of the update on his progress right now? Yeah, well, the the update on his progress is he's really good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and with uh, with more opportunity to be on the field, he's probably going to get better. I think that um, that's kind of the that's that's kind of the most important step of his development. Learn to play a full season healthy. Um, you know, the physical demands of the transition from high school uh, to professional baseball uh, had some toll, right? Like he had uh, nothing significant, but dealt with wrist soreness for a lengthy period of time that left him. Um, a little bit of rusty, a little bit rusty at the very beginning of the season. Uh, got past that really quickly in a way that suggests that he has it, like that he he has great tools that are playable. Um, I saw him shortly. I saw him not too long into the season, and over a couple of days, it was one of the best looks I've ever had at a Red Sox prospect um, in the time that I've been doing this uh, for Baseball America. And you know, just a couple of dazzling days of just hitting everything great swing decisions, uh, the ability to, uh, with with absolute ease in his swing and looseness, just drive the ball from line to line, uh, absolutely no concern about velo and um, 
everything was really, really good. Uh, and you, you kind of, I think that there is a uh, don't try to overthink this with regards to the player development approach with them. Just let them play and yeah. let them uh, let them get more experience against more advanced opponents. There were uh, I think that the swing and miss was a little bit higher than anticipated. The strikeout rate was more like 25 percent than it was, you know, the kind of 20 ish percent that you'd rather see uh, see a guy being around. So uh, there are there are some holes, although the swing itself. Like, it's not like he's selling out in a way that you'd think like, oh, this is going to be real. Like, oh, there are huge holes. It's just a matter of like, oh, he's probably going to like see these kinds of pitches a few more times and then be able to make some adjustments. Um, I, I think that it compromises maybe the projection of the hit tool a little bit relative to where we thought it was. The fact that there was uh, some swing and miss, but, you know, not drastically. And he's still getting on base and just let him play. Just let him play and uh, keep him on the field. I think that those are the big those are the big steps in his development. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this on on past podcasts and also just in general. He's a special talent. I got to watch a lot of him when he was at East Lake High School in San Diego. Yeah. One of those guys. It's just everything is so easy. You talk about you know the great players make it look easy. He always did the swing, you know, the defense, every aspect of the game. Um, just so naturally gifted and. You're right. He's someone that there's a lot of reason to be excited about, but it is a big transition from high school to pro ball. And in terms of, you know, competition, what was happening on the field, he certainly showed he was up for the challenge, but staying on the field is a big part of it. In terms of timeline, I think it's important to remember this is still a very young kid who just completed his first full season in the class A levels. There's still going to be some time here. There's still going to be some development. It's not a, oh, he'll be up in the majors end of next year and you know, we're off to the races. I mean, what's kind of the timeline that at least the Red Sox internally are, are hoping for, assuming everything goes according to plan? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, the the player development system under Bloom is a more deliberate one from in terms of level to level than, uh, than it had been under Dave Dombrowski, um, where, you know, I don't think that we're going to be seeing the Red Sox jumping guys anymore from double A to the big leagues. Like, we saw them make, we saw the Red Sox make an exception for Brian Bayo this past year. Uh, because they because they had like seven guys on the injured list at the same time, um, but uh, they they did not want to call up Bayo as early in his AAA time as they did. Um, you aren't going to see you, you. I just don't think you're going to see a lot of that uh, that two level skip. So I think that they would love to see you know again they want to see him get a full minor league season. Like Bloom talks all the time about not wanting to take shortcuts. Uh, in a guy's development and shortchanging him. Uh, I really think that it's going to be important for him um, to stay on the field and then, uh, you know, get, you know, 500 plus plate appearances this year and then uh, and then probably solidify. Like, it would be no surprise whatsoever if this year was split between high A and double A um, and then, you know, and then opening, you know, opening 2024 in either of the upper levels, double A AA or triple A, depending on how his performance goes. Um, and then, you know, and then you're able to, you know, and then you make adjustments in 2024 to figure out uh, when, if it's the right time. But yeah, I would be shocked if he was up any time in 2023. Um, and, you know, probably the first half of 2024 still seems a bit too aggressive. Um, so I think that that seems like a uh, a reasonable and aggressive timetable, right? Because that would be his the middle of his age twenty one season, um, which is still which is still a pretty uh, a pretty aggressive track. Yeah, he just turned twenty in December, and and you're right. That was one thing about the Rays that 
was one of their best attributes is they let guys actually develop. They don't rush them through the minors. And we see so many organizations do it and guys come up and struggle and they act surprised. And it's because they, I'd like to ask you, like, you know, so you, you would have a better sense of this than me. Like, you know, Wander Franco was a guy who moved as quickly as like, you know, as we've seen the move a position, right. Um, Did in 2022, were we, were we witnessing, like, were we witnessing some consequence to that? I mean, some of that was injury, so it's tough. I mean, you, you don't know how much of that was just maybe he was playing and he wasn't 100%. Um, but I, I do think in general, you know, being out, especially when I was in Durham, you saw a lot of guys still in AAA that other teams would have called him up to the majors, and it was good for them. It helped them, yeah. again, finish off the polish, see what it's like facing guys who have big league time. Again, I think Wander Franco struggles – Again, I think a lot was just injury based. You know, I think we'll get a clear answer next year. Um, but but in general, it's one of the strengths of the race as an organization and partially why they're able to be so successful is when they call their guys up, they are ready. And that gives them a little bit of an edge over some other teams that are a little more rushed about it. And I think that's one thing that the Red Sox certainly, if they implement it, hey, let's let these guys develop on their own timelines. Let's make sure they earn their promotions. Let's make sure they've completed these aspects that we need them to complete to be the best ball players they can be the most complete ball players i think implementing that is certainly something that will benefit the franchise long term it's just again a matter of ha- having the patience for it and, and there's no question marcelo mayer as talented as he is we just talked about he just turned 20 he played 91 games last year getting a full season you know against upper level competition especially once it gets better will only benefit both him and the franchise and that kind of leads me into the number two prospect in the system tristan casas who's on the other end of this he made his way up the minors, reached the big leagues last year, made his debut, still prospect eligible. What's next? What were kind of the initial impressions? And, and you know, what does he project to be? Because for a while he's projected to be, you know, potentially a, an above average to all-star caliber everyday first baseman. Um, just based off, you know, everything that happened last year, are the, do those projections still hold? I think that the Red Sox are still very optimistic that he's at least an above average future first baseman based on the all around package of attributes. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there were a number of misgivings uh, from a, um, from a kind of like scoreboard uh, impression, right. When he's hitting a buck 97. Um, but when you do that with a, with a, an OBP in the mid three hundreds um, and show the ability to hit five homers in you know, whatever, 27 games that you're uh that you're up in the big leagues. Like, I think that the Red Sox uh, place more stock in that, particularly given that he did not expand the strike zone. Like, this is, you know, this is the number one thing. And, you know, that, that can happen if you don't swing at anything, right? Like, if you are, if you're just overly patient, if you're just excessively patient, then you're not expanding the strike zone and you still aren't a good player. Um, but in his case, he was taking some big chances on heart of the zone pitches um, that uh, that spoke to, the significant year of development and change that Cassis had in 2022, which is that he went from being a guy who was kind of hit over power in the lower levels of the minors, just hated striking out and wasn't going to like, was very happy to poke a ball uh, through the left side of the infield, um, even in potential damage counts uh, in 2021. And I think the Red Sox kind of pulled him aside and said, Hey, uh, take some chances. Like it's okay to swing and miss sometimes. Uh, you're a big guy with big levers and you can do big damage. And so he, you know, you guys highlighted the fact that his exit velo jumped from about 89 miles per hour last year in 2021, that is, 
to 92 miles an hour this year, which was at the very top of the top 100 grouping. And uh, it it was mostly doubles this year rather than being like, you know, rather than being the like massive towering shots with loft. Um, but that's in there. Uh, that's certainly what he had done. That's more of what he had done in high school. And uh, that kind of big power is in there. I, I don't know how far up the, you know, wh- whether or not he's going to be a 25 home run guy or a 30 or a 35 home run guy. Um, but both the hit tool and the power tool are going to be, you know, are going to be average or better, maybe, maybe plus at first base, I think. And then with good defense. So uh, they love the attributes to the point where they had Eric Hosmer for free as an insurance <laughs> option, right? The Padres were picking up essentially all of his salary, except the major league minimum. And the Red Sox released him because they like Cassis enough that they just wanted to make a clear path for him. Uh, no doubt centering spring training. First base is his. Yeah, he's a really impressive player. And, and you kind of hit on it again. He's big. He's strong. He controls the strike zone. He moves well around the bag. And, you know, guys who control the strike zone that are as strong as he is and, and have the good pitch selection, they tend to work out. And, and you mentioned, you know, the 197 average, you know, 27 games of big league debut. There's a lot of really, really, really successful big leaguers who did a lot worse than that and over longer stints in their debuts. And, you know, seeing the on base, seeing the slug, seeing the power and seeing, you know, 19 walks to 23 strikeouts. He wasn't overwhelmed against big league pitching. It's really, really encouraging. I do feel like, Alex, you know, these two guys are considered, you know, the potential you know, all-stars, and that's why they are the numbers one and two prospects in this system. You mentioned the system has gotten better. As you filled out the rest of the top 10, you know, is there anyone else in here you feel like that has that potential all-star ceiling, or is it more a collection of, of, you know, potentially good, solid, everyday players, maybe, you know, above average everyday players? Well, one thing that I want to mention that's not on the top 10, which is that Brian Bayo moved so quickly that he was no longer top 10 eligible this year, right? He should have been. Like that, that was the plan. The plan was for him to spend, uh, to spend a lot more of the year in the, in the minors, as I mentioned earlier, necessity dictated an accelerated timetable. And he got hit around a little bit um, early in his call up when he wasn't ready, when he'd only had a handful of AAA starts, then got injured, had a kind of a few weeks to sit back, take stock of what he was doing and came back as a super impressive uh, guy who projects as a potential mid rotation guy or better. Um, So that's, that's a guy who has, uh, whose ceiling is is that of an all-star um, who doesn't get mentioned in the top 10, but is kind of still like less than a year of service time, barely outside of rookie of the year eligibility, thus barely outside of top 10 qualification. Um, I always pay a lot of attention. I'm sure you do too, to those final starts of the season when a guy is bumping up against 50 innings being like, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Uh, yeah. To figure out if I need to redo my whole top 10. Um, <laughs> Bayo's not obvious. So Bayo, I'm mentioning, but uh, but then pure prospects. Uh, the other guy with the huge ceiling is Miguel Blaze, uh, and you mentioned him at the top. But um, 18 in his in his 18 year old season in the Florida Complex League, uh, he was uh, about as he was one of the best five tool uh, put on one of the best five tool showcases in the minors, right? Like you would talk to uh, scouts who popped through, and they would. Uh, they're, you know, you, they'd have to pick their jaws up off the floor and, um, you know, there's, there's speed, there's power, there's, you know, there is, uh, there's, a, there's good defense, there is, uh, there's a great throwing arm. Um, so there's five tool potential. Uh, a lot of people saw him murdering a lot of fastballs in high velocity fastballs at that. Um, so that's a pretty significant checkbox, uh, even as uh, there's more, you know, there's, 
there's a lot of variance in the hit tool because there's a lot of swing and miss when it comes to breaking stuff uh, and chasing breaking stuff. But um, the, the ceiling is is pretty awesome. Yeah, with Blaze, you're right. He was one of those guys who was just the buzz was was very, very loud as the year was going on. Like, hey, this is someone to really, really, really keep an eye on. Again, we see it a lot. A lot of young guys, you know, especially in the complex leagues that have huge tools can murder a fastball. But as soon as they see spin, they kind of come undone. And it's it's interesting because a group of those guys, they make adjustments, they grow, and then they truly become the guys who are true five tool monsters because the most important is you have to be able to hit. Then there's other guys who just never really learn to pick up spin. They never learn to you know, stop expanding the zone against it. What's the confidence level here that he will be one of those guys in the former group who tightens it up, you know, gets better with his approach, his recognition, and is able to really get the most of his ability with it? Um, it's uh, it's mixed, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, people from different organizations. Some of them said that the strikeout rate, which was uh, greater than 25 percent, the complex league. Uh, represented a red flag. Other people said 18 years old, he's seeing, you know, he's seeing quality pitches, quality spin that he's never seen before. Great athlete, you know, really good hand-eye coordination um, and, you know, capable of hitting the ball so hard that even, you know, even being able to make adjustments to have some more mishits uh, would still lead to lead to some pretty good outcomes. So I, I think that you're, you know, I, I think that the reason why he's not a top 50 guy is because there's a question about where where exactly the hit tool goes. But, um, you know, 18, you get the benefit of the doubt when you're showing the ability to effortlessly uh, just smash 97-mile-an-hour pitches. That is certainly a really, really good place to work from. There's no question. All right, Alex, uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we still have a lot more to talk about. Uh, Masataka Yoshida, some of the guys at the back of this list, and and some of the depth you've hit on how it's getting better. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back here breaking down the Red Sox top 10 prospects with Alex Spear. I'm Kyle Glazer. All right, Alex, we talked about guys who signed with the Red Sox as amateurs. Marcelo Mayer, draft pick, Tristan Casas, draft pick, Miguel Blaise, uh, international signee, Brian Bayo, international signee, not 
prospect eligible, but like you said, still a young guy with a lot of upside. Then you have Masataka Yoshida, who was the top position player to come out of Japan this year, someone that teams definitely had interest in. Uh, the Red Sox signed him to a five-year, $90 million contract at the winter meetings, plus the posting fee. And it's funny, that very weekend uh, leading into the winter meetings is when I was really diving in to you know, finalize all our reports for NPB players, talking to a lot of scouts in the Pacific Rim about Kodai Senga, Shintaro Fujinami, and Masataki Yoshida. And the overwhelming consensus on Yoshida was, hey, good player, left-handed bat, contact hits the ball hard. You know, we kind of see him in that that 45 to 50 grade player lane, second division starter, maybe average starter, you know, four years, $48 million, something like that might be the contract. The Red Sox came out, gave him five years, 90 million, sent shockwaves through the industry. I can't tell you how many texts I got and texts I sent out like, okay, what are we missing? Because this is more than anyone else seemed to think. And it does seem like the Red Sox are certainly higher on him than most people. And they might be right. Generally speaking, what do the Red Sox see in him that made them higher than, for the most part, pretty much the entire rest of the industry? Yeah, well, I think so. I'll first, in terms of industry perception, right? Like, I, I, I get a lot of the same feedback, you know, people who are like, uh, isn't this twice what, you know, what the market form should have been? I think the Red Sox were comfortable bidding aggressively because they they saw that even if even if that's where a number of teams were willing to go. They thought that there were at least some other teams that uh, that had a much higher view of him than that, and so they didn't want to. Um, and so they didn't want to bid to the market. They wanted to bid above their above the top competitors in the market, right? So, um, so there's you know there's it's a blind auction, and uh, or you know, and so you make your you make your best bet, um, and that's what they did because of how much they like the player. Uh, in terms of who the player is, uh, they see someone with exceptional bat to ball skills uh someone who had who you know who would perennially lead the npb in on base percentage and be you know right at the top of the heap in terms of batting average who in the last couple of years really started um destroying pitches like some of the home runs that he was hitting uh you know there's there was one video that was prominently moving around uh moving around the red Sox, you know the red Sox player evaluators um of uh of uh yoshida uh, demolishing a uh, demolishing a 95 mile an hour fastball that was like above the belt and like hitting it like 450 feet or 480 feet or something. Um, so they they think that there's power in the tank, particularly playable at Fenway Park. He's capable of of lofting the ball to left field. So the value of a guy who's capable of using of hitting the ball to all fields, which Yoshida is, uh, yeah. is elevated at Fenway Park. If you are a left handed hitter who can who can play pepper with the wall. Then you have a chance to be a very special hitter. You know, Bill Miller became a batting uh, a batting title winner uh, in part because um, a switch hitter. He had a lot of left-handed at bats where he could just you know where he could just hit little pop-ups off of the wall and uh, and you put up some huge that way. Yeah, uh, and so I think that the Red Sox um, the Red Sox believe Yoshida can be. Uh, I, I didn't mean to use Bill Miller like I don't want to view him as, as the come, but they they view him as someone who has. A uh, special bat-to-ball ability. Uh, did an incredible job of managing the strike zone, which is something they did poorly as a team last year. Um, and believe that he has that he's uh, an impactful hitter. Like that he's not just that he he has a chance to not just be an average hitter, but to be like you know a plus hitter with uh, with average to above average to you know with average or above average power. And if you have that at Fenway Park, that's a 
that's that's significant, um, even if there are major defensive questions surrounding him. Yeah, you mentioned him as a hitter, and, and again, having done a lot of work on him myself, talking to a lot of people as well, everything you mentioned holds up, right? It, I want to be clear, while there are people and teams who are higher or lower on him, it's consensus. He can hit. It's really good bat speed. It's plenty of hand-eye coordination. He can use the whole field. He's aggressive, but he knows the strike zone. He hits the ball hard too. You know, someone made the point, this isn't Shogo Akiyama who just didn't hit the ball hard enough. I mean, he can impact the baseball. So all those things are great, right? Plenty of bat speed, manages the strike zone, hits the ball hard, uh, can barrel up all types of pitches in all parts of the zone. You know, there's no question he he's at least an average hitter and probably an above average one. And there's also no question that across the board defensively, it's all below average, below average left fielder, below average, maybe even lower than that arm, below average speed. The question does come down to how much loft do you think he will be able to add? How much power? And, and I spoke to some people who say, you know, I think when he gets here, it's going to be more gap to gap power. And I spoke to some people who said, you know, he has a chance to get to average power. So, you know, if he's a, an above average hitter with average power, that's 280 with 20 homers. That's a really good player. That's someone who's a, a really good player, no matter the defensive limitations. I think the concern comes in is, okay, what if he is more of the average hitter that's more hitting 250, 260, and it's 10 home runs, then what do we have? And I think it's it's that's the question. And I do think it needs to be noted the Red Sox – are one of the most aggressive teams in scouting Japan in the Pacific Rim. They pour more resources into it than a lot of other teams. And they have a really good track record over there. Now it's all pitchers, um, but this is a team that that knows what it's doing over there and has the knowledge and has the on-the-ground resources where some other teams don't. So I, I, I think what the Red Sox are potentially expecting from him in that contract is reasonable. If he, 280 with 20 homers, that is absolutely a possible outcome that would not be a jaw-dropping shocker it's just a lot more people think he might fall into that 250 10 to 12 home runs which is more that second division starter guy you don't really want playing every day if you're trying to be a playoff team and that's where i think if you say the red sox stuck their neck out a little bit that's where it would be that he is that 280 20 homer guy not the guy who might be more again putting up numbers you'd want to see starting on a second division club yeah, and some of that might also be related to the place where he's going to be playing, right? Because again, you do not have to crush the ball to the opposite field in order to be able to have a great outcome at Fenway Park. You're also, you know, if you're if you're making contact like your spirit, you know, it's the Wade Boggs thing where you're spared a lot of foul territory, so you don't ever foul out uh, to that side of the field, and you can take a lot of chances there. Like Fenway, he is an all fields hitter. Uh, he's capable yeah. of hitting the ball, you know, line to line. Yep. Uh, that works really well for a left-handed hitter at Fenway. So presumably from that vantage point, he could have more value as a member of the Red Sox than he might for other organizations. And the defensive detraction is also diminished by virtue of the fact that Fenway has the least amount of real estate to cover in left field in all of Major League Baseball. So you're masking some of his deficiencies. You are uh, you are amplifying some of his strengths. Um, and so from that vantage point, it, it kind of makes sense that the Red Sox uh, might have seen greater value from him than some other organizations did. Again, even his arm, he's going to be throwing from you know 290, 300 feet in left field a lot of times. He's not going to have or to make... Or he plays left field up. like Manny Ramirez did, then from like 50 feet in left field. So <laughs> yes. I mean, so again, it's one of those things where it, it, it could be very much a good fit. And I know it's going to be um, one of the most watched storylines of the year in Fenway Park is how he does, given the dollars he received and, and the reaction to it. Um, again, just when you look at I mean, Kodai Senga 
a much, much better prospect and he got less money than Yoshida. And even you look last year, say a Suzuki going to the Cubs, you stack those two up, Suzuki, you know, comes ahead by a mile and he went out and had, you know, an okay year for the Cubs, but he wasn't a standout. So um, it's going to be a really fascinating storyline. And we'll see. I, I think the one thing you, you give the Red Sox credit for, as you mentioned, is he's a good fit in their park, at least in theory. And it, this logic is sound. And also they scout Japan really, really well and have a lot more resources and eyes over there than a lot of other clubs. So it's it's not impossible that they're right and everyone else is wrong, given they kind of start from a place of more information and more resources over there. All right, Alex, moving into the rest of the system, kind of the back 10, you've talked about this system has gotten a lot better over the years. I said back 10, back five, excuse me. Yeah. How do you assess the depth of the system right now? And, and I guess one way to kind of answer that is how many guys were, were clear-cut top 10 prospects and, and how many guys were still kind of in the mix? Uh, I think that – so I do think that there's a pronounced fall-off. I think that the progress of the system really is like in the top five. Uh, the fact that you have guys who are in the upper levels either making an impact in the case of Bayo and Casas or close – or where you're not just like – you're not just imagining like, oh, there's an A-ball dude. Or like a short season guy who has uh, who's barely played in the states. Like it's it's different in that sense uh, at the top of the system. The six to ten, I don't think is uh, you know the the six to ten wasn't necessarily stellar. Brian Mata is someone um, who Brian Mata and Nick York are both guys uh, who have ceilings that um, that could push them at, at some point. You know, well up from where they are. Uh, York, both of them had uh, both of them have had injury issues. York had a big time down uh, downturn in performance in 2020 after a spectacular pro debut in 2021. So the ceiling probably remains unchanged. The floor moves a bit. Uh, Mata is someone who has um, an awesome arm uh, and stuff that's as good as just about anyone in the Red Sox system, including Bale. But uh, but uh, he came back from Tommy John this year. Um, he's had trouble throwing strikes. So you're so he's far from like the floor there is is kind of loose too. Uh, where it might be as an it might be an impact reliever. Uh, there's a chance of being a pretty interesting starter. We'll see. But in terms of guys who were in the mix, eh, uh, it was you know there weren't like a bunch of guys who were like screaming like oh this guy has to be uh, has to be in the top ten. Like they have uh, they have guys who you know who as young it from from six down you have some guys who either have limited ceilings who are in the upper levels, um, guys with a chance to be back end starters like let's say a Chris Murphy. Uh, who's been, you know, who's been on the radar for quite a while, uh, or some of the other pitchers, um, you know, Brandon Walter is someone who showed uh, really interesting ability to miss bats, but then missed half of the season due to uh, due to injury, and he's um, a bit older as a starting pitching prospect. But they have AAA pitchers who they like, which is a very different place than they've been in for <laughs> many years. Like they're the number of people that they would like, they would go out and sign someone out of an out of indie ball and start them in the big leagues before they would take someone from their AAA rotation and move him up for a number of years recently. So uh, they're in a very different spot and they're willing to make some bets and give some opportunities uh, to those guys. So it's not like, it's not like sexy top 100 type stuff, but it's just like a more functional kind of depth where they're like, okay, we're, we're ready to, we're ready to rely more on guys who are already in the system uh, rather than looking for cast offs from other places uh, in order to give opportunities. And then, you know, and then further down, like Blaze is, you know, is the greatest example of a guy in the lower levels uh, who has a ceiling that is, 
you know, who has a ceiling that's that's pretty pretty alluring. But um, you have other guys like a Nick York who could uh, be very interesting, a Mikey Romero who's uh, kind of Marcelo Mayer Meyer light, you know, in terms of being someone with just good a great feel for the game, um, who moves around really well and uh, who does things easily, who does valuable things easily, like makes good contact, um, moves around really well in the middle infield. So, um, so they have, they have guys who you're, who they're happy to have in the system as opposed to like, I mean, Anthony Flores was a guy who was in the top 10 in 2019. Uh, and like, he then went on to like never hit 200 in, you know, ever in a stateside, uh, in a stateside performance. Yeah, no, there's no question. You mentioned kind of that functional depth. That's important to win games at the major league level. You know, you don't need guys to all be top 100 prospects, but having a guy who can come up and give you eight or nine quality starts when an injury hits, that that's important. You need that to survive over the course of a long season. And there's no question when you have it in Pawtucket as opposed to or, or Worcester, I should say. Sorry, old habits die hard. As opposed mm-hmm. to uh, having to go sign someone out of you know the Atlantic League, it it's a better place to be. There's no question. Alex, I do want to hit on um, one player with you that didn't jump into the top 10, um, has some name recognition, and, and had an okay year last year on paper, and that's Blaze Jordan. Again, mm-hmm. um, you know, celebrated as an amateur, went in the third round, um, performed you know pretty well in his pro debut, and, and had a, a solid first full season as well. Uh, what's kind of his update, and, and what kept him out of the top 10, and, and does he have a chance to move in? Where is he kind of at right now? Definite chance to move in. Um, he had a really good year, age a really good age nineteen season, uh, moving right right along with Marcelo Meyer, um, and you know the hit tool played, which I think was rather interesting, right? Because like there had been no questions about his power. He's like this legendary. He was a teenage power hitting legend, like from the time he was literally thirteen years old and uh, and crushing balls into the far reaches of the trop in home run derbies. Um, he. I, there was always the sense of like, oh, this is a guy who could be just a massive middle of the order power hitter. Uh, so the raw power still exists, but he focused on just, you know, making contact more than he did on uh, on killing the ball this year. Um, it's not a super refined approach by any stretch of the imagination, but there was much more contact and a much more manageable strikeout rate than I think anyone anticipated. I think he was sub 20% in the end. Um, but Given that the like, given that the attraction is with the power, you would like to see him get to the power a little bit more. Um, also, a lot of the damage that he ended up doing this year, uh, according to you know a lot of the evaluators I talked to, was at the lower end of the velocity spectrum. So, like, really pulverizing 91, 92 mile an hour fastballs or hanging breaking balls, but not really doing stuff with the kind of you know with the better quality stuff that you'll see as you move up the ladder. And then defensively, even though he played both corner and field positions, uh, I think that the consensus is that he's somewhere between a first base and a DA, first baseman and DH um, in the future. And so that limits his value and you've got to be, you better be really good offensively if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to be a, a top prospect, but as he gets into the, you know, as he progresses into, you know, the upper levels, especially, um, as he's challenged with more consistent, higher quality stuff, uh, he absolutely has a chance to elevate his ranking in the system. If he conti- if he keeps putting up lines like he did in 2022 against better competition, then he better be in the top 10. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I guess that would be its own interesting commentary on where the Red Sox system sits. 
Yeah. And, and again, I think part of what makes him interesting is he's super young. I mean, he was one of the younger players in the draft class. He just turned 20 here uh, in December as well. So I think, you know, age played mostly a full season, got into 120 games and, and you see the lot of doubles. You saw the contact it. I obviously you need to see it against better competition. That's true of any player in the class A levels and especially true of guys who were pulverizing you know, velocity at the lower end of the spectrum. But at the same time, it is interesting, like you mentioned, a lot of the questions surrounding him, he he performed pretty well. Like he he did better than expected in a lot of ways. And given his youth and production, it, it does seem like there's something to hang your hat on from the outside looking in at least. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't overmatched, right? As a teenager in full season ball, in two levels of full season ball, there was no point at which he just looked overmatched. And there's a lot of, that's, that's very promising. Yeah, and that's what I noticed too, is he got up to Greenville. Again, it's only 25 games. He hit better than he did in low A. So, I mean, it's like, oh, yep, here it is. Have to make an adjustment and no problem. I got it. So it's, it's encouraging. It's a little tricky with Salem to Greenville for the Red Sox because Greenville is an amazing hitting environment. Um, but uh, But nonetheless, like, if you're not striking out left and right when you do move up, then you're, you know, then that that is something that you should take as encouraging. Absolutely. All right, Alex. You mentioned, you know, the system again. It's better. The strength of that is in the top six, but there are always guys in lower levels who we look up. You know, I mean, you've you've been doing these rankings long enough to know there's enough guys you rank number sixteen or twenty one or twenty three, and you look up five years later and they're in the big leagues, and the guys ranked numbers six, eight, nine are have flamed out. So you know, there's always guys you know lurking in the back half of the system who who end up doing okay. Who are some guys, you know, in the back half of the system that that have shown something where you could say, you know, I can see this guy contributing at the very least in the major leagues, you know, some sleepers, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, sleepers, I think that, you know, there were there were a lot of interesting names in the lower levels this year. I will say that, like, one of the guys that uh, that generates considerable excitement in the Red Sox system is uh, Wiggleman Gonzalez, who's just a little bit outside the top 10. Um, but he was, uh, you know, he's a pitcher who. Um, didn't have a great uh, a great season long line, uh, but made some nice adjustments to get to spend more time working in the strike zone at the end of the season with uh, with a Mitch with with a mix that's you know that's headlined by easy mid nineties velocity that can get up to the high nineties uh, with this fastball, and you're looking at you know you're looking at curveball change up off of that um, as well as uh, as well as the possibility for a slider. Um, and he was really, really good at the very end of the season in his last few starts in both Salem and then after a promotion to Greenville. So if you're looking for a future starting pitching prospect um, beyond the guys who are in AAA, that's that's probably the guy that you uh, that you end up turning to. Um, and then, you know, kind of uh, kind of further away. Um, yeah, it, it really was uh, it really was the short season. A lot of the short season guys who uh, who just stood out um, in terms of. Uh, in terms of looking like ball players, uh, Blaze is the one who uh, Blaze is the one who we've already uh, who we've already identified. But so there are a couple of guys who like who impressed in uh, in kind of brief samples uh, coming out of the 2022 draft. Um, Chase Mydroth was a very interesting one who um, who was University uh, of San Diego, yeah, University of San Diego. So known very well to you, but like all of a sudden, like he uh, he was this little guy who like got on base and hit for average. Who all of a sudden started hitting for some power that was some pull side power that was really interesting when he got into pro ball this year. Um, they have uh, one of the catchers they signed for over slot this year. Uh, Brooks Brannon is a guy who like they love in terms of the makeup um, who looks like he has a chance to be to develop as an interesting catcher uh, moving forward. So 
you know, there are kind of toolsier guys at the uh, at the lower levels who uh, who have intrigue. Um, and then just in terms of those good baseball players that you're looking for, you have guys like Brainer Bonasi and Edison Paulino who are going to be moving up to high A this year, um, who just play a lot of positions in a way that uh, that makes some of their offensive skills. Like they have future big leaguers at, at each level, right? You can see big league tools. Again, it might not be the top 100 guys, but um, you, you see future big leaguers, which a couple of years ago, you didn't necessarily see that a lot of their, at, at a lot of their levels. Yeah, no, again, the, the system is certainly um, in a better place than it was. And, and now it's about translating that to major league success and getting the Red Sox back to where they've become accustomed to being, especially in the 2000s, four World Series titles. And, uh, you know, I won't say perennial contender, but a contender more years than not. So we'll see if they can get back there. Obviously, there's a little bit of a hill to climb from last place to, to back to the top of the East, but we've seen them do it. So we'll see if they're able to do it again and, and expedite it a little bit. Alex, Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate your insight as always. Great evening, Kyle. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Alex Spear, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thank you for listening. Have a good one, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.